16, and then I'm sorry I had to cancel on short notice last week, and I fear that I gave you a good you know, question to think about how the first half all hangs together theologically, and I feel like one week is the optimal amount of time to mull over a question, and two weeks is the amount of time by which that question is totally forgotten. So we'll go back over that. So we're on page 16, Baruch Shamar. We looked at the first half last week, page 16 in the Sidur Sim Shalom. You know what it's called? Someday this will be online. And we looked at the first half, which we said is a poem, which I, in thinking about it more, I actually think it is intended to be a poem about what you should think heading in, what you're supposed to think heading into Pesuket de Zimra as what is the core Jewish theology of God. That's what I think it's meant to be in its unofficial pre-philosophy kind of way. So it's not systematic, but I think it all hangs together as uh, this is Jewish theology. Does your, is your question pertain to before I go over it or after I go over it, Meyer? The question well, you Let's uh, let's ask the question now, and then we'll see if okay, the answer also, pertains yeah, to now or later. It was actually was meant because I want to review it first. Right. Uh, okay. Well, this has to do with the, the the gender use here, because I think that's one of the things we discussed a lot last time. Was okay. God being uh, who? Uh, who? Because it's gendered language. Yes. Right. Hebrew is a gendered language. Right, but that also means that there's no gender neutral in the sense correct. that, that who is correct. could also be you know not a he or a her, but it's right. a reference to yeah. a non-gendered entity. Uh-huh. So I want to suggest that perhaps mm-hmm. you know, that could easily also have been the reference, even though obviously the visualization is for a key, right. and that is the translations in the key, yeah. um, that uh, there's no other alternative if in you're Hebrew. going to try to give it right. Hebrew uh-huh. to give it a gender neutrality. Right. And yes, and are you aware, uh, not are you aware, but just to make you all aware, there is some <laughs> professor and grad student at University of Colorado who are working on uh, uh, Degendering Hebrew or trying to find gender neutral terms. Just so you know. Yeah. I don't know what they have for as an alternative to who or he, but I'm certain that it's such a basic word that they must have something. What? They published a whole list. They published a whole thing. There you go. It's online. Look online for University of Colorado Hebrew gender and it'll all pop up. Yeah. I also had a question, and this is about the English translation. Uh huh. The English translation alternates between passive and, and active form of, of verb because first it says glorified, is then it says laud, which is more like a command. Right, and then revere and acclaimed. Right. Okay. So yeah. That, Thanks I, for asking. Not in the Hebrew, and that's just for correct. It's so it's totally not in the Hebrew. It's actually conceptually kind of uh, just in terms of literary structure, conceptually kind of the opposite of the Hebrew. The Hebrew is, as we said last time, what's called a litany. A litany is a list of short things that has sort of some repetitive structure to it. Like just think of Hu Ya'anenu, that prayer in Slicha. May the God who answered so-and-so, may the God who answered Abraham and Isaac, may God that one answer us. May the God who answered Jacob when he slept, May God answer us. May the God who answered Moses at the Red Sea, may he answer. So that's a litany. It's kind of a list of things. It's a, it's a, a kind of piyut, right? It's a kind of liturgical poem. It's just a really structurally simple piyut, okay? And the thing, the literary thing about a litany is that you have a word or short phrase that you repeat over and over again, okay? 
So that's kind of the whole thing that makes it a poem. What our, thank you for pointing this out, Michael, because I frequently don't look at the English translation. So what our English translator has decided is that literarily, that is, I'm gonna guess our translator decided that literarily that is boring. I think that's what our translator thought, okay? And our translator thought it would be much more engaging a prayer if instead of saying the same word over and over again, whatever translator, whatever translation they would use for Baruch, blessed or full of blessing or whatever, uh, if let's translate the word differently every single time. Okay, so it's it's clearly not a literal translation of the Hebrew, and it clearly has a totally different literary aim. I just want everyone to see how it's totally different. Where it's like, oh, I'm going to start each verse, each line with a different word, a parallel to uh, praise or bless. Okay, as opposed to the Hebrew, which is dafka with the exact same word. By the way, we know that in Hebrew there are places, like we'll see in the second paragraph, where we're going to have lots of different words for praises. She wrote brachot, tishbachot, right? I think in Yishtabach we have like 10 or 15 of them. Whatever, right? So there are places in Hebrew where the literary form is let's have lots of synonyms but not the same word, okay? But this is a place, Stafka, where it's not. The literary form is, no, let's actually repeat the same word. Baruch Shamar Alam, Baruch right? Baruch Hashem And we talked last time about how there's a version of this which maybe comes from manuscript where it's Baruch and Baruch Shemo as alternating refrains, which still makes it a litany. It's still a litany if you have two different refrains. Okay, so thanks for pointing that out, Michael. But yes, that is totally not the Hebrew. Larry? A ritual question? Ritual? Yeah, why ritual. Do, yeah. Why, why, do we, why do some of us hold our, the, only the front two tzitzit and just the tzitzit at the end? Yeah, because it, it says it in the Shulchan Aruch. It's the short answer. It's a minhag that when you say Baruch Shamar, you hold your front two tzitzit. You stand, first of all, for the whole page. You hold your front two tzitzit, and then you kiss them at the end. And what is the origin of that custom? I don't know. And why is it the front two tzitzit and not all four? I do not know. Okay. But yeah, but it does say it in the Shulchan Aruch. I'm not sure if it's in the Shulchan Aruch or in the Mission of Brura. I'm not sure where it is in the Halakha. I'd have to go back and look for it. I'll try to do that for next week. But it does say that you are, quote unquote, supposed to do that. So another interesting question is, how come that seems to have fallen by the wayside in lots of congregations? Even if you go to an Orthodox shul, there are lots of people who do not hold their front two seat seat when they say Baruch Shamar. Just look around, you know, anyone who goes to, I don't know, Meyer, look at, when you go to B'nai David on a Shabbos morning, look around, we're gonna, sign, we're gonna give Meyer an assignment. Please, <laughs> when, you, when you come back next Tuesday, God willing, please tell us what percentage of the men with taluses you would guesstimate at B'nai David on Shabbos morning are holding their front two seat seat during Baruch Shamar. Despite the fact that it's in the Shulchan Aruch, I think it's actually low-ish percent of people do it. So that's interesting too. How come it's sort of a standard minhag in the printed halachic sources that has mostly fallen, uh, not entirely, but mostly fallen by the way, said Meyer. Do you want to see the what's No, you tell me. I don't want to see it. You want to tell me. Oh, it just said, no, this is about what he was saying. Yeah, go ahead. Question. It says, the second half of the blessing is a prelude to the biblical verses that follow, mainly from the Book of Psalms, but also from the Book of Chronicles and Nehemiah. Yeah. To emphasize the significance of this declaration, we recite it standing, and at the end, kiss the two front 
fringes of the colony. Yeah. So to me, to emphasize the significance of it, we da da da, is sort of a made up reason. Like, okay, but why is that more significant than some other passage? That's why I'm wondering. Michael. Mysidor says to, to do that idea. Yes. I don't think it gives a, I don't know if it gives a reason or not. I Correct. Not right. Enough with the Hebrew right. Problem. So I will hunt down the halakhic source for next week. Okay. But I think it's really interesting anyway yeah. is that we create these interactive pieces yes. that we use during the davening. Yes. And as there's ultimately a, there's, there's actions, not just words. There's a choreography to it. Yes. Right. By the way, what's interesting is I believe we don't do that for Yishtabach. Right? So the, the, official envelope for all of Psukei de Zimra, the Psalms of Praise, is Baruch Shamar is the bracha at the right. beginning, and Yishtabach is the bracha at the end, which makes it one unit, just like Hallel has a bracha at the beginning and a bracha at the end. It's sort of analogous to Hallel, right? Um, so we do that at the beginning, but we don't do that at the end. Why are you printing? Why are you bringing me a print just, that's too small for me oh, to read? I'm, okay, okay. What am I going to do? The very first line is the instruction, okay. but I, I don't think it... Yeah, you took your two tzitzios in front of you, and you say it's standing. Yeah. Kiss him and release it. Uh, and when you finish, you kiss it and release. Yeah. Okay. But the only thing that we do do for Yishtabach is we do have a custom of changing the nusach. Yeah, right. But we stand. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Right. Is, there, is there places where we do that envelope where at the beginning and the end you, you, you would do like the a, same custom? Well, is that why you were not not examining? Let's just say, for those who hold their tzitzit during the Shema, which we think of as universal, but it's actually not universal. Apparently, I think Rav Soloveitchik didn't did not, and the followers of Rav Soloveitchik do not. So it's just a minhag. What do they do? They don't hold the tzitzit do we, do during Vayomer. Uh, I can work on why. I don't know. I'll, I'll research that too. They don't kiss the tzitzit. They do not. They do not hold and kiss the tzitzit during. They do not hold their tzitzit during Kriyat Shema. Larry is shocked. Yeah. Shocked, right? They do not hold the tzitzit during Kriyat Shema. They do not kiss the tzitzit during the third paragraph. I went to his, his brother's yeshiva and we did there. So. Okay, you went to his brother's shiva. Yeshiva. Yeshiva. And you did there, right? So I'm, I'll work on that. I'll research that. Okay. So anyway, talk, uh, talk to Mickey. Mickey says that he doesn't kiss anything that's inanimate. Okay. I was going to say it's pagan. Right. Right, really? so, so for example, so to answer Terry's question, um, you could say, you know, we gather the tzitzit before Shema, right. and then we release the tzitzit at a certain point at the end of Shema. Or at the beginning of the Amidah, we take steps forward into the presence of the, the sovereign, and at the end of the Amidah, we take steps back to take our leave of the sovereign. So those are things that are kind of a unit that we have a choreography that marks the beginning, the intro and the outro of the song, as it were, right? And it's interesting that for this, you do the tzitzit at the beginning, but nothing, as far as I know, for Yishtabach. That's all. Yeah, I, I, I didn't mean to make a greater point of it than no, that. No, it's interesting. Yeah. Okay. But you, I, I like yep. you should consider, I'd like you to consider when we finish with this, with this unit, maybe doing several sessions on not just choreography, but how individuals make their make the prayer unit or individual prayers more meaningful. Yes. Okay. I'll try to do that. Well, the whole the whole the whole course, the whole class is about that, Larry. But I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> but, I'll, but I'll try. But I'll try. I'll try. I'll try. I'll try. You're, you're right. <laughs> I'll try. Right. Right. I'm uh, sorry. And by the way, you know, we always use the word 
choreography about these things in prayer, it, which is not actually the best possible term. It's kind of how we, um, I'm going to say, different aspects of, let's just call it embodiment of aspects of our prayer, things that we do, standing, sitting, feet together, feet not together, bowing, how do you bow, when do you bow? You know, uh, how do you hold the tzitzit? When do you kiss the tzitzit? By the way, they're min hagim to kiss your tefillin at certain points during the Shema. So all of these, let, let's just call it, they're all kind of, in, in, right, covering your eyes, right, for the first line of Shema. So they're all different aspects of, let's just call it embodiment, right? Or, or are there things that we do physically? What are the things that we do physically during the davening that uh, have the intention, purpose, goal of embodying or enacting some emotional or psychological or spiritual aspect of the davening, right? Just like, you know, simple concrete thing like, oh, we, we go up on our toes, I'm kadosh, 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 because we're like the angels, so we're closer to the angels. We put our feet together because the angels, you know, don't have articulated joints in the, in the, on their feet in the Midrashic thinking. So that's sort of a simple basic one, and these are other ones that we're talking about. So Meyer has given us one reason, because of the importance of this passage from Nehemiah. Okay. Um, <sighs> okay, we didn't go over the theology. So keep thinking about the theology of the first half, Baruch Shamar, and we will review it and do it next time, and we don't quite have a minion, so we won't say Kaddish. Everyone have a good day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Terry will send it to me, please. I will.